right, let's turn in the Bible now to James chapter 4. We have just a few Sundays before we get to the new year. I just wanted to cover a couple things that have been weighing on my heart. And part of what I'm going to preach tonight was how I began my sermon this morning. The bulletin says, the vanishing life. And I don't know how it feels from y'all's perspective, but from my side, it seems to me that I talk about this a lot. And I do a lot of funerals and get asked to do a lot of funerals. And I've even told you all that I like doing all the funerals that I do. I'm not too much of a weirdo. I'm not pessimistic or gothic or, or anything like that. But I do enjoy being involved in lots of these funerals. Now, some are really hard and some I wish we didn't have to do. And all different, different perspectives there. But... I do like it because it just it does something to my, to my soul, to my heart. I've often, I mean, not every time, but very often, I will be sitting there and they're playing one of those heavy songs that just cause you to reevaluate everything in your life. And I think as soon as I get home, and I don't even mean 5 o'clock because I usually run home to get out of that suit. As soon as I get home, I'm going to pick my kids up and hug their neck and tell them I love them, and recommit myself to being the best dad I can possibly be. And that happens more often than not with these funerals. And it causes me to remember that, you know, I just don't have much time left to be what God wants me to be. And James chapter 4 brings this to mind. Read with me, James chapter 4 verse 13. We're going to read all the way through 16. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. And all such boasting is evil. The book of James is a book that pulls no punches Uh, James is heavy and gets right to the heart of the matter. If you're going to talk it, you better walk it. Don't tell me you're a Christian, show me you're a Christian. Don't tell me you believe, show me how believing is producing fruit in your life is what the book of James is about. James is known for his big quote in chapter 2 where he says, Faith without works is dead, which is controversial when Paul writes in Romans 3 that it is apart from works that you are saved by faith and works cannot contribute to it. James says, I hear you, Paul, but I'm going to tell you this, you better have works with your faith. And that's very real in the book of James. That's a real struggle. And James picks up on things that are so absolutely practical to the ins and outs of of our lives, even in 2016, right here in Louisville, Kentucky. 
It is in chapter 1 of James where he tells us that if you don't have any wisdom, pray to God and he'll give you wisdom. You're struggling over a decision? If you're struggling to make a decision, the book of James tells us to pray to God for wisdom and he'll give it. A lot of times we fail to take that one step in the process of seeking his wisdom. It's later on in chapter 1 of James where he says that we need to be quick to hear and slow to speak and slow to anger, which is just outstanding advice. Quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. That comes from James. And then later in chapter 1 of James is where you have him say, pure and undefiled religion before the Father is this, that you take care of widows and orphans and keep oneself unstained from the world. James is good like that. You think you're religious, he says. Well, here's what a real pure religion is. You care about children who don't have families. You care about widows who now don't have a family. And you guard yourself from getting dirty with sin. That's that's just chapter 1. And then he keeps going and he gets to chapter 2 and he talks about what it would be like if a really, really poor person walked into your worship service. And he asks, you can tell a lot about yourselves by the way you would handle that. If a a dirty person, perhaps drug abuser, showed up on a Sunday morning, how would we treat them? As opposed to if somebody who really, really looked like they had it all together. A lot of money showed up. And James warns the church... How you handle that will really tell you about your faith and your works and your commitment to Christ. Man, that's, that's, that's good preaching, right? We, we are challenged and our toes are stepped on when you examine how we treat all people. And see, our problem is we look at how we treat good people and think that we're good people because we treated a good person good. We don't worry about all the neglect or whatever. James wants to call us out on that. Later, James would get to the tongue, and and he talks so much about our, our tongue and our speech and how we talk and how the tongue is the very thing that's like the the steering wheel of our lives. Which again gets to all of us. Then he gets towards the end of the book in chapters 4 and chapter 5 and he starts to talk about stuff and coveting, the desire for stuff and worldliness and attention and recognition and and wealth. Sum all that up and you might have status, if you will. And he warns against that. In verse 13, he has in mind a people who talk like this. Here's what we're going to do. Today or tomorrow, we're going to go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and and make a profit. Now, I realize in Fairdale, there's not too many people that like to travel around and go all over the world and spend a year in a place and trade and make a profit or whatever. People in Fairdale like to stay in Fairdale, and I, I like that. But James has in mind a people who talk this way. And it's a problem to him. 
Not so much because going a place and spending a year in a place and trading and making a profit is a problem. That's not a problem at all. That's actually a pretty fun life, and I'd like to do a little more of it. No, nothing wrong with that. It's the, it's the way the person is talking about it that bothers James, that now becomes an example in his little book of five chapters that this is bothering James, that there are believers in their midst that talk like that. What's so wrong about saying that? If I had opened up by saying, tell me what your Christmas plans are, all of you would have probably said something like that. I think I told you all before I went to North Carolina for Thanksgiving that I was going to North Carolina for Thanksgiving. And James, had he been here, would have said, not so fast, Josh. Who do you think you are talking like that? James wants you and I to know that that's the way the atheists talk. Their words have no connection with what God's plan is. Hear me out for a second. Atheism is not necessarily the worship of God. It's just the idea that there's not a God. And so I do whatever I want. And if I tell you all that tonight at midnight I'm running up to Walmart... And I don't factor in the fact that God may not let me run to Walmart tonight at midnight. I'm like an atheist. And this bothers James. Because while that may seem insignificant to every one of us, the ripple-down effect would be that every aspect of our lives are treated the same way. And a good, honest observation would be that's true. So James has a problem with that. Verse 14, he answers, here's the problem. He says, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. This is why it's wrong to say that. And he corrects it there and he says, uh, what is your life? You're a mist. And he goes on in verse 15, he says, here's what you ought to say. If the Lord wills, we will live, we will do this or that. that that's what he's wanting you to see. It's not what you're doing, it's, it's how you're speaking about what you're planning to do. Are you trusting in God? And he's building upon this. Don't turn there, but at Proverbs 27, if you can remember that, the wisdom of the Proverbs teaches us to not do this. It says, do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring. See, God's wisdom in the book of Proverbs says, don't do that. Don't tell me what your Monday's going to be like if you've not considered that God controls your Monday. And when James hears the church speaking like they're in charge of their next year without considering that God's in charge of the next year, then he has a problem with it. And I know that you think, yeah, I know, I, I didn't really mean it. But James sees that a problem is fitting into this whole issue with saying you're a Christian but not living like you're a Christian. Right. If faith without works is dead, here's a real small picture of where your life is not matching up with your faith. If God controls your tomorrow, then you ought to speak about your tomorrow by a faith in God, a trust in Him, and a dependence. I think that we know that. After that, he asks this question, what is your life? He's asking us, is our life something that we get to control or is it something that God controls? He's asking us, is our life in our hands or is it in God's hands? He's asking us, are we sure about that? 
It'd be really good for us to have a kid in our lives or a someone living in our house that every time we boldly spoke without a faith in God would say, are you sure? Are you sure that's what you're going to do? Because I would bet if time would allow, we could go around the room and we could say an example from our lives where this is what we were thinking and yet God knew otherwise. Right? I can't tell you how many times as a pastor I've heard somebody say, well, here's what I thought I was going to do and I had these plans for my life, but it didn't turn out that way. Right? James knows that beforehand and he's one of those guys that every time he hears somebody talking like they're in charge, he says, no, no better than that. Don't do that. He says, what is your life? And James wants us to answer that question with, you're right, James. My life is actually this very fragile thing that is connected to the true vine, to go back to the I am statements, where apart from him, I can do nothing. And if I show up to work tomorrow, it's only because God got me here. And I'm mindful of that. So when I set that alarm tonight, it is by faith that God will allow it all to work well and me get here. Val's dad has taught me this. He didn't teach me this. I just observed it and I picked it up that way in indirect teaching. Every time he takes a medicine or somebody takes a medicine, he says, in Jesus' name. And I like that. Two ibuprofen, which I could take all the time, right? Without even hesitating. And he'll say, in Jesus' name, you're taking that. If it's not by the grace of God to cause that ibuprofen to work or to, for him to use that, it will not work. And much bigger than a headache or something like that, anything. What is your life? Our life is something that is in the hands of God. He goes further and speaks of our lives being fragile and he says, you're a mist. And I do quote this at funerals often. And I know people don't like to hear this, but... You're a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. In the big scheme of things, we're not that long. We're not that lasting. We're not that permanent. We're just not. We're just not. A day is like a thousand years to God, and a thousand years is like a day. And however many years he gives us, when you look at the big scheme of things, it's just not that in the mornings, I listen to uh, uh, Louisville Sports Radio, I think it's 93.9, the Drew Diener Show. The Drew Diener Show now has a guy on there with him named Marcus Maben. I don't have any idea who Marcus Maben is. And I asked one of my buddies the other day that's a big L fan, who's Marcus Maben? He's like, you don't know who Marcus Maben is? Man, Marcus May was one of the greats, man. He was so good, man. He could dunk. He, he was on those championship teams. I mean, he was going on about Marcus Maven. And I thought, I have no idea who Marcus Maven is. You know, 19, I don't know what years he played in the 80s, but I was a little boy, and I hardly knew anything about North Carolina basketball. I definitely didn't know anything about Louisville basketball. And life's kind of like that, right? There may be some people in some places that you're still a big deal to, but in the big picture, you're not a big deal to many people. You're not a big deal to many people. You're actually more like a mist. 
and soon it'll vanish. I haven't looked at the weather, but this misty, ugly weather right here may be gone tomorrow, sun shining, and we're not going to think anything about it. A mist like a smoke or... Or, or, or like a fog that, that goes away. And God says we are like that. James says that we are like that. And he wants us to back away from this, this arrogance. And again, that is what he calls it in verse 16, a boasting, an arrogance. He calls it, it evil. This really seems to rub James the wrong way. And he, and he says he wants us to back away from that. And he wants us to be these people that almost see ourselves as always being in the hand of God, always being in the, the sovereign care of God. He wants us to see ourselves, as Jesus would teach, as children who have a good, loving Father. James wants us to. And so it brings up this idea that our life is vanishing. And if, I know you've heard this before, if Jesus is coming back tomorrow morning, Monday, then tonight would probably look a little bit different. You'd probably kneel beside your bed. Or if God told you that tomorrow your kids were going to get into an accident, and tonight's bedtime would look a little bit different. And when I go to all these funerals, what I'm doing is I'm, I'm walking my lives into people who are experiencing that. Husbands and fathers that have dropped dead from a heart attack. And in the case of Diane Kirk, I had to talk to, to Dana, who said, I, Dana wasn't there, and she had just left. And she said, I did, she said, she was crying, I did not want to miss the opportunity to have a final conversation with my mom. And she left to go home, and before, and as soon as she got home, they called and said, Dana just died, or Diane just passed away. And if we know that that matters, if we know that that's a possibility, then, then we start to think about lives, our lives differently. A beautiful example of that is what Gordon just told us. An awareness now that his, that his life and his valuing people and, a, and an appreciation for where he's been and all that God has done and the many, many, many relationships that he has far outweigh how much is in the bank account. And an, a, an awareness of that now is what it means to live by faith instead of having to get to your deathbed and say, well, I've learned this now. It is possible for you to get your life focused on Jesus now and not have to get to uh, dying and, and, and say, well, I wish I had done all that. I wish my sons knew how much I loved them. I wish my wife knew how much I loved her. I wish I prayed with her. The pastor of Bellevue Baptist Church, one of the biggest and most successful churches in, in Tennessee, is now... Mr. Gaines, and uh, he's been there for a while. He followed the great, I can't remember the name of that pastor, Adrian Rogers. Yeah, he followed the great Adrian Rogers to be the pastor of that church. And just yesterday, I saw him post online what he would tell himself if he could be young again. So he's, a, he's about 60 years old now, and he said, if I was a young pastor just starting off right now, say 25, here's what I'd tell myself. Pray more, be with my family more. 
Well, he's not wanting every young pastor to make the errors he made, neglect that, and wait until they're 60 to learn that lesson. He's doing what James is doing, and he's, and he's challenging us to, like I say often on Sunday morning, to redirect our lives into making those things the priority. And this is not what it means to be uh, a special person. This is what it means to be somebody who understands the sovereignty of God, that he is a father in heaven to us. He is our Lord and Savior through Christ, and we are to live our lives like he is reigning in us. That's what James is wanting us to understand. I want to show you a few passages. Psalm 39 that I, that I opened up with. Turn back there, if you will. Psalm 39. That was a great psalm to begin with. It was, it was heavy and it was real. And He's speaking to himself. In verse 4, in verse four he says... In a prayer to God, O Lord, Psalm 39, verse 4, O Lord, make me know my end. And what is the measure of my days? Let me know how fleeting I am. If you are realizing that you want your life to be more focused on God and it just feels like it's hard to get there, pray like this. Take Psalm 39, verse 4, and pray the very thing that, 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 that the psalmist here, it's David, that, that, that David is praying and say, God, show me how fleeting I am. Show me that I'm not as big as I, I think I am. I'm not as special as I think I am. I'm not as important as I think I am. God, show me that you've got this. I am fleeting. Verse 5, he says, you've made my days as a few hand breaths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. David is reminded that his life is not his to control, not his to make successful, not his to make secure. Look down at verse 7 then. Oh, and now, O oh Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Turn with me to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12. I know you've heard this before, but you need to hear it again. Verse 16, sorry, verse 15. He said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. That's a good Bible phrase that you need to remember. You remember when James asked, what is your life? You need to be able to remember that Jesus says, it's not consisting of my stuff. You need a bigger, better answer than that. You need to be deeper than that. You ever had a conversation with somebody who wasn't impressed with all that you've done and they've been more concerned with who you are? That, that's good. Okay, I, I get that you've got credentials, but who are you inside? 
I get that there might be some people in Fairdale that like me, but does Carolina? And will she in about 10 years? That's the type of things God wants us to matter. Who cares if Fairdale High School thinks it's neat that a pastor is around a lot? James wants us to understand our life is fleeting. Life does not consist in the, in the abundance of its possessions. It doesn't matter how much recognition we get from the things that are trivial when the things that are important things are there before us. So in answer to that, Jesus says this, verse 16. He told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do for I have nowhere to store my crops? Sounds like a nice problem, doesn't it? And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink. Be merry. But God said to him, Fool. Does anybody remember what the Psalms say a fool is? It's exactly what James is talking about. What, is a, what do the Psalms say a fool is? Okay, yeah, they despise wisdom and instruction, but it says more than that. That's right. The fool has said in his heart that there is no God. This is what Jesus means. The man with all the profit is thinking about his profit as if God doesn't have a care about what he does with his profit. If you've got all the resources or all the energy or all the effort, and this is not just a money thing. If you've got the health and energy to be working in Dare to Care but you just don't want to, you fool. If you've got all the resources or energy opportunity to love your neighbor and you just don't want to, you fool. You're living like God didn't say love your neighbor. If you want to work all the time and ignore your family and neglect your children, you're living like God hasn't said that the family's the most important thing in the world. You fool. This goes exactly with James 4. His answer is, you fool. You're saying in your heart there is no God. In other words, we should be asking ourselves all day long, what does God say about that? What does God say about how many hours you work? And what does God say about how much time you spend with your family? What does God say about you not praying with your family? What does God say about that? What does God say about the tithe that you gave today? What does God say about how much... You eat. What does God say about everything? And you are a fool if you're wanting to do any of your life without God at the very center of it. What is your life? It doesn't consist in the abundance of your possessions. Your life is actually vanishing. And the only thing you're going to be able to have at the very end is what your relationship is with God. Here's what he says. You fool. This night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. That passage is teaching us to realize that at any moment we could go. And are we thinking and mindful of that? 
Turn to Exodus chapter 1, and we'll finish there. Exodus, that's the second book in the Bible. You can find it. The vanishing life. Now, there is a balance, and I know you know this. Everybody knows it. There's a balance. There's a tension between being too conservative or being too liberal. There's a balance between being too, too strict and too free. We know that, right? There's a balance there. You need to have a, a good sense of all things in moderation, right? You need to be able to understand that that passage that I just read to you, Jesus is not saying to the man who made all of that profit to take all of that profit and give it away that day and ruin his life for tomorrow. He's not. He's wanting that man to understand part of your decision-making in making all that profit is what should I do in case I was to die tomorrow? And there's a nice, balanced, biblical wisdom in, okay, I do need some money in case this happens tomorrow, but I also don't need all the money in the world in case I die tomorrow. And part of that is walking by faith and figuring out that. Living like my life is in God's hands and not living like life is in my hands only. And in the book of Exodus, I love this example. And as I was studying for James, this example came to mind. Everybody knows the book of Genesis, right? I've been challenging the boys to learn the order of the book of Genesis with everything through. And you get to chapter 37 and the rest of the book from chapter 37 to the end, chapter 50, is all about Joseph. And you say, Joseph, 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 Joseph. And you say, all right, which of the 12 sons, which one is the one that Jesus comes through? And the kids answer, what? Joseph. But that's wrong. Trick question. He comes through Judah. Okay? Because there's not much in there about Judah, but Jesus comes through Judah, and they think that he comes through Joseph because he's the main character in the story. I just tricked y'all on it too. Joseph is the key player, right, that becomes the prince of Egypt under Pharaoh. And then we get to Exodus. Read with me Exodus 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Isaacar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Nan, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died. And all his brothers and all that generation. Verse 7. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Joseph's awesome, godly, focused faith in God, his leadership over the people of Israel was such a blessing. God was working in it. And even though, listen to me, even though God's people were slaves in Egypt, they were blessed because Joseph was so God-centered. He was leading them to be God-centered. He was uh, impacting their lives to make them God-centered. And they were fruitful and they were multiplying and they were prospering and they were growing and they were exceedingly strong. But Joseph died. Verse 8, now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. The vanishing life, right? The vanishing life. There's coming a day real soon when your family won't have you. Isn't that a weird thought? Can you imagine Trinity and Tristan without... Right? Can you imagine Graham without Jake and Sam? Can't imagine 
thou with those five without me? There's coming a time when you're not going to be here. Can you imagine Fairdale basketball and King of Bluegrass without Coach Stan Harden? But it's coming. It's coming for all of us. What is our life? It's vanishing. And there's something to pass on. And it's our great God and Savior, Jesus. Joseph knew that. He passed on. But look what it says, verse 9. And the king, who did not know Joseph, said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel, too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. Verse 12, but the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service. And it goes on and on and on. But what I want us to see is that with Joseph, his life was a beautiful blessing to those underneath him. He died. And they continued in that blessing until God led them otherwise. The vanishing life. The people of Israel with Joseph's influence least for a little while. And James wants us in James chapter 4 to live our lives that way. Jesus died on the cross for our sins and living for his glory is all that matters. Now it's real easy to get that right on a Sunday night in a short little service. The challenge is getting out of here and getting into all the stresses of life and applying that. But as we lean in toward the grace of God and the forgiveness of sins and the great truth that he loves us in Jesus, God will begin making our minds be focused on him and focused on him and focused on him. Don't boast arrogantly like evil with I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. and Here's how I'm going to live my life. Humble yourselves before God and by his grace, move day and day to day let's pray father life is vanishing and only what we do for you will count and we don't want to waste it god i pray that you would help me to love my kids well and i pray god that you would help me to love my wife well And I pray, God, that you would cause everybody in here to be the same. I pray, God, that you would humble us. And as we move into work week tomorrow, God, that we would be mindful that we won't move one step unless it's your will. And God, humble us under the vanishing life. And may our lives be in your hands and therefore for your glory. In Christ's name we pray, amen.